Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Yes, yes, yes. We are back again. We are back again. We are back again. You are now entering the Rabbit Hole Podcast, where will it lead? What's next? And who knows? But follow me and let's explore together. What I can tell you is that we explore the past, the current, and future of individuals who hold interesting jobs. This podcast provides information on how to get into these various industries by giving you an inside look of the experience of the people who hold these jobs. My name is Shane, and I'm your host, and I welcome you to the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Today, we're going to interview someone uh, in the entertainment industry. And when I say entertainment industry, yes, I mean uh, someone who has been working in Hollywood, the mecca of all entertainment for all over the world. We are going to talk about her, her past, uh, and how of how she got into her position, of uh, actually how she got into uh, her career, uh, what she's currently doing, how how effective, uh, you know, what what you have to have to be effective in her role, and then the future of entertainment. So let's go ahead and bring her on the call, just like in all past podcasts. We go ahead and call our guest uh, and try to catch him at home. I've been trying to get this person on our podcast for a few weeks now, and now we are able to catch up with her. So let's go ahead and give her a call now. And once again, everybody, you're listening to the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Thank you again for listening. So we're going to go ahead and bring our guest in. Hello. Hey, Heidi, how you doing? This is Shane, and you're on the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Oh, okay, great. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, thank you. Good, good. And um, so, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy day. I know every day is very busy, especially, you know, your weekends where you're trying to prep for the week. So today I just wanted to, you know, have a few minutes of your time, maybe an hour or so, and just basically talk about you and your... Okay. <laughs> right, right. That shouldn't be so hard to do, right? And, uh, yeah, I hope not. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, I just want to talk about your career and, you know, what, what's going on? What's going on with you? Okay, great. So, um... Again, welcome to the show. And you know, what what do you do? I, you know, I was looking at IMDb, the database, uh-huh. and I was I was pretty surprised that you had a long list of shows that you've worked on. Um, I know currently, please correct me if I'm wrong, that you are mm-hmm. a 
production manager. Correct. For one, That's correct. One of the hottest shows on network television, Blackish. Yes, we are the number one new comedy this season, which is uh, a big accomplishment because we, you know, there hasn't been um, a predominantly black cast comedy on network television that has been as successful as we have been since probably like my wife and kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, before that, Cosby and... You know, there's it's it's been kind of a bleak landscape on network TV. There's been other shows that have been successful on um, cable and on kind of non like what we call uh, the super stations. You know, like uh, TBS and WGN. There's been shows that have been successful with black cast on those stations, but. None of those get the same kind of numbers that network TV gets. And same thing with uh, anything on cable. You know, you can be a big hit on cable um, and you still are only bringing in about 3 million viewers. And But when you're a big hit on network TV, you're talking about like 10 million people, which is a big difference. Mm. Yes, that, that's actually a significant difference. Um, yeah. So what... What makes a show successful versus not being successful? Is it just a, a matter of viewers per week? Um, no, I think, you know, in terms of the numbers, it's, you know, you have a, a mass appeal and something on your show rings true with an audience um, and with the masses, basically. Uh, you know, the, the black audience is incredibly underserved. And I think that automatically when you have something that's in good shape and, you know, we're funny and we're current, um, that automatically, you know, black people are going to tune in. But then we also, what's interesting about our show is we have a really large white audience. Um, and I think part of that is because we come on right after Modern Family and people keep the station there and they're like, hey, this is funny too. Um, and it doesn't, you know, they're not changing the channel because it's black people. They're like staying there because it's funny and they're like, and they can identify with the more universal themes. And I think that's what really attracts an audience or makes a show successful. Um, is universal themes and that's what happens like with the incredible success of Empire this season you know in the drama category is that it is appealing to people because it kind of is like a throwback to things like Dallas and it's like a heightened version of reality so people you know it's escapism and it's a lot of fun same thing with comedy. It's escapism and it's fun. It's like a different kind of fun, but it's still fun, and so people want to watch that. We have a huge demographic, and it spans both um, age and color, and that's the same thing I would say with Empire. Right. No, I think I would agree with you, especially on Blackish. You know, I'm, I'm more of a fan of Blackish than mm -hmm. I am of Empire. Um, because you're on it, of course, or be, you, you <laughs> work on it, of course. So I'm, I'm definitely a fan in everything that you do. Um, 
But I, I know just with entertainment and things on the radio, things on television, it, it's they really trying to capture capture that entertainment. It's not supposed to be, you know, the real stuff in life. It has to have this sense of fantasy, right? Right. I always like say it's heightened. Story. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's so, like heightened reality for escapism, you know. And and, and especially, I, I know that first uh, show that I seen on TV, I was a little bit apprehensive of Blackish, but then as I'm watching it each and every week, they seem to be getting more funnier, and it's it's, it's not really about, um, it's it's not really about the black experience for me. I think it's more is starting to get to the human experience. Right, and it's that, that universal theme yes. thing again. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's what um, I really I, appreciate about the show. Well, thank you. Thanks. And yes. yes, I'm the production manager, and uh, I've been the production manager on a few shows. Um, my first production managing job was on a show called Body of Proof, and yes. I did that for two seasons. I did a pilot um, called Spy, which was a comedy, which was uh didn't get picked up by a network and but it's a british tv show it's kind of funny cuz they it's a it was the american remake of a british tv show um and then i did a one season of a show called silicon valley which runs mm-hmm. on hbo which is uh very successful and then i did the pilot for blackish um after silicon valley was finished i did uh blackish and then uh when it was time to come back to work, uh, I did the series of Blackish, which has been very successful. So those were those were the jobs I did uh, as a production manager. But before that, I was uh, an assistant director for the majority of my career, and I worked on all sorts of projects that were television, some were movies, some were television movies, um, and and with the span of comedy and drama. So uh, lots of different kinds of experience and a couple documentaries too. So what is a unit production manager? Um, well, I guess maybe I should start with uh, how a set is set up, which it is kind of like, <laughs> we always laugh because we're like, it's kind of like the army. Um so the way that a set works is that, you know, there's all the different departments. It's it's always surprising um, when people come to visit, they're always amazed at how many people are there behind the scenes because it's a lot of people um, involved in what we're doing. So there's different departments, camera department, grip department, electric department, hair department, makeup department, wardrobe, special effects, visual effects. Uh, and it goes on and on. Construction, art, you know, it just goes on and on. There's, like I said, several, several departments. But the unit production manager is the person who has kind of delegates where all the resources go to the different departments. And the different departments are the, um, I mean, that's not all they do, but that's one of the main things. So dealing with the budget and make sure that people stay within the budget that's agreed upon at the beginning of either the season or the episode or the movie. Um, So, like, the different departments being wardrobe, (laughs) hair, makeup, 
yeah. camera grip mm-hmm. electric. Mm-hmm. Um, and all, one of the other things you do is you supervise uh, over scheduling and how you're going to execute and also creating a plan on how you're going to execute and make sure you shoot the things that are in the script. So it's kind of like being in control of a big puzzle and putting, bringing all the pieces together. I see. It's kind of like what I do, like project management. Exactly. Um, That's exactly yes. what it is, is project management. So in, in your line of work, you know, in, in project management, there's this methodology called the project life cycle. A project management life cycle has four phases. The initiation phase, which consists of developing business cases, feasibility studies, project charters, project team, project office phase review. The next phase is the planning phase. That's where you create your project plan, resource plans, financial plans, quality plans, risk plans, acceptance plans, communication plans, and procurement plans. Very, very important uh, key uh, documents or project artifacts to have. Um, and then the next, the third phase is the execution phase where you're actually building deliverables. Uh, you're monitoring and controlling by performing time management, cost management, quality management, change management, risk management, issue management, procurement. And then there's the final phase of the project management life cycle, which is closure. And that's where you actually close the project and review the project completion tasks. What life cycles, if if that's the term that you guys use in your industry, that, that you guys actually use? What's the what's the process leading up to something going into production? We don't use those exact same terms, but it's the same thing. So it begins with development, and that is with, you know, somebody has an idea, they turn it into a script, uh, and I'm kind of going quickly over that part of the process because I'm not involved in that part of it. So uh, basically, it's an idea that becomes a script uh, and how it gets to that point of development. Sometimes the studios participate in the development. Sometimes it's just an individual who has an idea, and then they pitch it to a studio or to a network or whoever, and then they sell the idea, and that's a a simplification of that part of it. But once it becomes that and there's been a decision to produce that actual uh, script, then that's when I become involved, and Mm. we start the preparation of how to execute that. So we start working on uh, the first thing we do is break it down and find out what the elements that are necessary. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all of there's a general amount of all of the same elements, which is you know camera, actors, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the wardrobe, the hair, the makeup, that part of it. But then there's different degrees of the involvement of certain departments. So like special effects or visual effects. Um, 
Okay. Uh, that can vary on, from project to project. So then after you get into the preparation part of that, so you're hiring those departments and figuring out how you're going to execute it and how much money it's going to cost, then you actually go into physical production. Um, so and during the preparation phase, that's when the dollar amount is being assigned to the correct, project? Correct. That's so, when it's being determined. Sometimes, mm -hmm. um, depending on what the project is, it is determined before that stage. So hmm. the studio or the network or whomever, um, if you're doing like an independent film, they're like, we have $2 million. How are we going to allocate our resources? So that's all the money they have. That's it. There's no more. There's no less. So you figure out how you're going to be able to do the project for that amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes... You know, it kind of varies from project to project and all right. that, but generally um, the networks or the studios know how much they want to spend on it, and mm -hmm. they tell you this is how much we're, gonna, we're willing to spend on it. You create a budget um, on how you can execute that, and that includes everybody's salaries, all of that kind of thing, um, how much you're going to spend on materials and supplies, everything. And what you end up doing, uh, it, it gets modified a little bit because uh, in television, for instance, episode to episode, um, the cost may vary. You're allowed a certain amount of variance. I so, um, because, you know, different episodes require different things. In one episode, like, for instance, in Blackish, in one episode, we had a fantasy sequence where the kids were uh, doling money off the top of an ice cream truck. Oh, that's crazy. And so that was different than, say, an episode where you have, um, gosh, I was going to say where you have no fantasy sequences, but we have fantasy sequences almost in every episode. But when you don't have a specialty item. That fantasy theme again. Right, where you don't have an, a, a specialty item of, you know, an ice cream truck, which you have to go out and get one, and then, you know, we dress like everybody, everybody in that particular scene, everybody was dressed in white, we had to um, have special music, we had stunt people, we had, wow. the, the kids had to be anchored to the top of the uh, ice cream truck, you know, all those kind of things, so that was extra above and beyond what wow. we normally have money for. So you figure out how you're going to, you know, include that, incorporate that from episode to episode. And then I after see. you shoot the episode, then you go into post-production. Post-production is where they do uh, the, the editing of the whole episode, put it all together. They assemble all the pieces. Uh, then they add music. They do coloration uh, to make it so you can – see it correctly on your TV so it's consistent all the way through. Um, they do all sorts of things. They add, you yes. know, sound effects and uh, clear up any sound that didn't get recorded properly or for whatever reason, like there was airplanes flying overhead. They take out the airplanes, you know, they do all sorts of stuff in the post-production and then it finally gets delivered. And then right. after that, it gets broadcast. Now, when it get delivered, is this at the point like the executive staff or a certain panel of people are actually approving, not approving, or is that happening before There's, your 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 post production? 
They're, they're executives. Um, we have created executives, post-executives, um, and what they call current programming executives. All those people are actually involved all the way through the process. And basically what happens is through each stage, they kind of weigh in. So they get a script. They make their comments and changes and how they think that maybe you should do something differently or mm-hmm. maybe this should go in a different direction or maybe you've gone off track, and they weigh in. During the I production see. phase, we have a production executive who's, uh, who weighs in about, you know, could you save money in this direction? Mm-hmm. Could you cut back in this? Could you do something differently? Um, then when you get into post-production, there's a post-production executive who says the same kind of things. Maybe we could save money by not doing this visual effect, or mm-hmm. maybe they could uh, fix a scene by adding this visual element or adding a sound element, something. Um, and then you get to the final part of where it's going to be broadcast and all those people uh, there's executives who weigh in the current programming and they're like, okay, the final result is um, on track with what we signed up for. Okay, then go ahead and let's broadcast that. I see, I see. And that's basically your 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 go-live, so to speak, in, in tech terms, but you're basically taking what you've been developing all along and you're sending it out to the world. Right. Exactly. And sometimes it doesn't happen right away because, you know, one of the things I can tell you that we have what's happened on Blackish is uh, a lot of it has been out of order. So some Mm -hmm. episodes, I think Andre from Marseille uh, just aired recently, but we shot that months and months ago. That was a crazy episode right there. I, I was dying the entire time. So, yeah, no, that's it. Actually, turned out really well, but they had a lot of things that they had to do to it, to mm-hmm. um, just from a production standpoint, from a story standpoint, just to get it all pulled together. And that happens sometimes. And it's, you know, just kind of what you think is going to work doesn't always work, and so, until you see it, and then you're like, oh, here we could add this, and that'll make it better. So. What kind of skill level do you need to be at that point? You know, you can understand what's going on in society, what's going on on television already. Who has that kind of skill or that kind of acumen to understand, like, you know what, this, that right there is not right for this scene and it's not a good time this week versus, you know, it might be good, you know, two, three weeks down the road. Oh, it's usually not so much week to week. Um, it's more of a story works or it doesn't work. And Um, that's basically, you know, our executive producers and creators of the show who, and it just kind of is, does it fall in line with what the overall show is about? Mm -hmm. Um, And then sometimes it's really simple. It's like, that wasn't that funny. (laughs) Now, now is this like the executives looking at this or is there like uh, like a group of like outside independent type people kind of looking at it? It's the executives, and um, and it's because they basically they know what they're, you know, what they the expectation is when they're writing it. They know what they think is funny. We do something called table reads, okay. And so uh, for every script, 
the entire cast is brought in, and we usually do it during a lunch time. And they come in and they sit around a table with the executives, with the network, with the studio, with myself. We all sit in there and they read the script. And based on a lot of that, a lot of times you can tell if something is funny or not funny or needs a little work or nobody understands it, like nobody gets the joke. Um, Or is that maybe too much for TV? Um, And it's not in full – uh, you know, actors aren't acting it out. A lot of times they're reading it for the first time, but you can still get a sense of what's going to work and what doesn't work. I see. Heidi, how did you get to this point in your career? Um, you're a unit production manager, but have you always been a unit production manager? Are there like steps to get to where you are today? The one thing that's interesting about a job in uh, this industry is, I would say that everybody has a different story of how they arrived at where they are, because it's not necessarily a clear-cut path, mm. but there are certain elements that um, you end up kind of all having in common. So I started out as a production assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and what do they normally do? Are they the ones that are getting the coffee, coffee and, and okay. <laughs> do all sorts of stuff? Um, I started out as a production assistant. Um, I did all sorts of stuff. You know, I drove uh, the car to go pick up. At the time, they used to do, you know, when we were shooting on film, you would have physical dailies. So it would be the film that you shot for that day, and mm-hmm. I would deliver it to the airport. And wow. then it would fly to the editors in L.A., and then I would pick it up the next day. Um, that was one of – actually, I actually enjoyed that part of my job a lot because um, <laughs> I just liked <laughs> – I liked driving to the airport for some reason. But anyway, um, right. that was when I was in Atlanta. But um, I was a production assistant who went – you know, you run a lot of errands. You're a runner. You yes. do whatever people ask you to do. I used to have to grocery shop. I used to do all sorts of stuff. Um, I no. had to, Go ahead. During during that time, was it like a regular like nine to five, or is it no. like you know they call you any time like twelve o'clock at night? I need this for tomorrow, or or I need this right now at the studio. I've heard stories about that, but my, I was pretty fortunate. Um, one, I started my career in Atlanta, and I did mostly feature films, and your hours um, vary tremendously. They're not. It's definitely not nine to five, and your shifts are usually in twelve hours. So a lot of times, like my first couple of jobs when I worked in the office, um, the office would open up at whatever time the company would open on location. So I would usually start, my morning would start at, I would have to be at work at like 7 Mm a.m. And then the production coordinators would have a list of things for me to do when I would run around and do all those kinds of things. And then they would usually send me home at 7 p.m. Um, I worked on a movie early in my career once where they were shooting nights. And so I would come in at something like two in the afternoon and then I would finish at two in the morning. So it can vary. The hours definitely vary. Um, but from that I became exposed to, uh, all the different departments and I chose to go into, um, I was interested in becoming an assistant director and the assistant directors are kind of like the, uh, 
the people who distribute the most information, they create the schedules, they run the set. Mm -hmm. And so okay. I was intrigued by that, and I started getting on-set PA jobs. And eventually, after several, a couple, about three years of being a production assistant and being a set PA, I got into the Director's Guild. Um, and when I got into the Directors Guild of America, I became a uh, second second assistant director. Um, wow! Now, now is the correct the Directors Guild? Is uh, that like a union of some sort, or yeah, it's a, a guild, special group? Which is basically, a union. Um, okay. And you, the you know, and it's it includes directors assistant directors, um, stage managers. Uh, there's also, like, people in news, are, they have uh, floor managers, technical directors. But the most famous of the, the members of the Directors Guild are the feature film directors and television mm -hmm. directors. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so that's like the Steven Spielbergs and Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino's of the world are also members fish. of the Director Guild. Yes. Um, and some were assistant directors before they became uh, directors. So basically, once I became an assistant director, then you go up, there's different levels of assistant directors. So a second, second assistant director or the additional assistant director kind of has lesser responsibilities. And then you get to the key, key uh, second assistant director who has tons and tons of responsibilities, sometimes I think too much. And then the first assistant director who is over all of the assistant directors who are on set, but they also are in charge of running the set and they work most closely with the director. Um, and they are driving the set to complete the amount of work that you have to do, um, which is probably uh, an interesting concept to people is that they don't understand the idea of that you have to have somebody who, who is keeping you moving forward because unfortunately or fortunately, whatever, what happens on a set is people, um, you can kind of become stuck in one spot. Um, so they're a decision maker and helping the director make decisions on how to keep the day moving. Because days are so expensive, one day of shooting is so expensive. Because yeah, when, and there's, when, so go when, ahead. When, when you say like very expensive, you mean like the time of all of the resources, meaning the, the actors, the people behind the camera. Right, the cost of then, the labor, the cost of the And then the cost the of actually being in the studio as well, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. So it can range depending on how big your production is. But even on some of the smallest productions, it can be as much as 150000 a day. Jeez Louise. So you're, it, it's an expensive day. Yes. Um, and you're penalized by the varying departments if there's certain uh, requirements that you don't meet. And that's, be right. that's because, you know, those unions and all are protecting their, uh, in their members mm -hmm. from incredibly long, crazy hours. Um, because if a minimum day is 12 hours, when you start getting into 14 and 16 hour days, 
you know, it becomes dangerous. And it also becomes incredibly expensive. So, you know, you want to keep it to about 12 hours, um, less if you can, if you're able to achieve that. So you've got to have somebody like the first assistant director who's behind the director and saying, all right, let's, we've got that, you know, are you comfortable with that? Let's move on. Because often the director, who is the artist, is kind of, I don't want to, uh, I guess stuck isn't really the best word, but they're looking for performance and often perfection. And sometimes you can't get perfect and you've got to keep going. Right. Sometimes you right. do, but sometimes you don't have time and it's not the most important element of whatever that production is or the script or the work for that day. So you've got to, got to know when to say when and keep moving. So, and for that person in that role, mm -hmm. they normally would have to have pretty much like a, a tough skin, right, to be able to go up against the director and be like, you know what, we've been on this for several hours and, you know, time is of the essence. Um, we really got to move forward. It can't be a person that's kind of just a little passive, a little introverted. And, no, you know, not at all. You have to, I mean, I, I would honestly say of this entire business, it's very kind of type A. Um, and now, of course, not everybody is like that, but for assistant directors, production managers, producers, you are often, at least in my experience, and I say this of myself too, you tend to be very opinionated, <laughs> not easily intimidated, and speak your mind. Um, and, you know, and you learn as you go through uh, when to speak your mind and is it worth the battle at that, you know, pick your battles. Is this something you need to fight over or is this something you need to just come on, let's keep going and move forward. Um, so on, so there's all the assistant directors, then the person in charge of all of the assistant directors and all of the departments is the production manager. And that's, so I went through all the stages of assistant director. I spent the most time being a second assistant director and the least amount of time as a first assistant director. Mm. And I've spent more time as a production manager than I was a UPM. I, and I'm sorry, more time as a production manager than I was as a first AD, which to me actually, uh, for my personality, worked really well. Um, uh, different people have different paths. Some people were first ADs for years and years and years and then decided that they wanted to be a production manager. Some people jumped straight from being second ADs straight into being production managers. Um, it just all kind of depends on what your opportunities are and uh, what you want to do. Now, now, is there a lot of these people that jump around these particular positions? Do they have a certain type of education? Is there? Do they have like you know? First, they should probably have like a, a high school diploma. But I mean, do they start getting up into um, like you know like their bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, PhD you know type what? degrees? It varies. I know um, production managers and assistant directors. Some who are, I would say all are high school graduates, some who went to college, some who did not. Um, one of, two of the the most successful um, assistant directors 
and then one actually has gone on to become a very successful director, uh, Anthony Hemingway uh, is a really good friend of mine and became one of the youngest first ADs in the history of the Directors Guild wow. and uh, skipped all, you know, skipped the stage basically of uh, going to college. I think he ended up like going and taking classes, but he was not a full-time college student um, because he worked every single summer mm-hmm. as uh, on in production. So just his general experience kind of kept propelling him forward. And he went on, of course, then to become a feature director and a really, really successful uh, television director and very respected in the industry. Um, and then another friend of mine, Jonathan Watson, who uh, came from Australia and literally became like it was a production assistant and got into the Directors Guild, uh, I think, when he was maybe like 21. Wow. And uh, same with Anthony. I think he got in when he was like 21 um, and, you know, just shot up the uh, – charts there and became a big time feature first AD and did all of those crazy Jim Carrey movies and stuff. Um, wow. Because I'm sure their, their work ethic is just probably just probably bar none is the, just extreme, right? Yeah, they probably two of, the two of don't them sleep are, at all. No, but two of the smartest people that I've I met. Um, I mean, they just, really understood it. And that's the thing is, it's kind of, I don't, I don't think that it's that, you know, you have to be such a genius or anything to be in this business, but it is a difficult business to navigate. And it's a difficult business to kind of grasp and understand. And, but once you do figure it out, then you can kind of keep moving. And it also is a business that has incredible amounts of temptation that could sideline you. You think? Absolutely. Right. Some of the greatest have been taken down by, like you said, that that outside stuff, right? They have Absolutely. all this temptation because Hollywood, I, I consider it's like the mecca of all entertainment in all of the world, right? Everybody want to get to L.A. to be a star mm-hmm. because we see on TV, uh, again, going back to that fantasy theme, all, all, you know, all the money, the nicest cars, just beautiful people, big houses, you know, sunny Los Angeles, California. We are living it up, and it's definitely a lifestyle. It's so funny you say that because I'm looking outside right now, and it is dreary, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, up here it's a lot nicer. I'm looking out. It's, it's clear blue skies and a perfect California day. But we're happy to have rain because we haven't had any in a long yeah, time. Definitely but it's, rain. it's absolutely true. Those are the things that attract um, people. It's so funny. I think of the story when early in my career, a couple of my cousins came out from the East Coast, came from New York to visit. And, you know, New York, 24 hours a day, there's something to do, something to do. Right. And we were trying to hang out, trying to hang out in L.A. And, you know, everything closes at 2 o'clock. And they were like, why is everything closed? And I was like, because people have to be at work tomorrow morning at, like, 7. And if you're in hair and makeup, you're at work at 4 in the morning. So it's like, yeah, yeah people go home and go to bed. It's, yeah. it's kind of, you know, and it's just like even just an example, the Oscars, 
Um, you know, the Oscars, you know, big across the world and all that kind of stuff. It starts at five o'clock in the afternoon here, you know, to make yeah. it, so it's an eight o'clock East coast broadcast. So all the late night partying and all that kind of stuff that you think is happening, not so much. Yeah. People are normally getting ready for the Oscars or they're probably, they're probably like, <clears throat> are they coming back from work and, you know, going home to get dressed to go to this event? And then after most the event, those, luckily, most of those things have been shifted to Sundays, so you have the wow. whole day to get ready, as opposed to when it used to be on Mondays, and then mm. you'd go to work, and that is exactly that. People would go to work, then they'd come home, they'd change their clothes, and then they would go to, you know, whatever the evening event. But now that they changed it to Sundays, you know, at least you're home by, like, 10 o'clock or 11 mm -hmm. o'clock, mm -hmm. and then you can get up, and then you have to go to work the next morning. It's, you know, it's a funny thing. Um, it's not it, – it, it, I think the biggest thing with all of that, yes, there is elements of all of that, you know, the flash of it all, but the bottom line is it's lots and lots of hard work. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I see it on state on on television. I definitely get that piece of it, especially a lot of these guys. Like I guess your main star on the show, Anthony. You're seeing them on all the networks doing something, and I'm just imagining how is it. I mean, a lot of these places are probably in New York. A lot of them are in L.A. You know, you're doing you're doing like the NBA, uh, what, what, the NBA, what was that big thing? All-Star Weekend, yeah. All-Star Weekend thing, and then you're seeing them on, you know, doing these commercials and things like that. I'm like, geez, Louise, you, how how can a person have time to do all of this stuff? It, it has I don't to know be how hard Anthony work. does everything that he does because I actually I would say Anthony does not sleep. Um, wow. And Anthony works. You know, when especially right before Christmas when he was doing those Walmart commercials and doing right. the show and doing publicity stuff. And, you know, right. publicity stuff is work. Um, it, you know, he was probably, I would guess, averaging about 16 hours a day of work. Wow. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's, it's definitely hard work. It's a lot of work, and you kind of have to figure out a way to pace yourself through the season because – Making 24 episodes of a television show is relentless, and it's endless work in and out. And, you know, it, it it's tough. It can be really tough. I mean, I've, I have to figure out for myself, I've had to figure out how do I keep the pace up and how do I not, you know, burn myself out. Because the other thing is you don't really have sick days, and if you are sick and you're an on camera, so if you're sick and you're an actor, you know, you can end up shutting down an entire crew, which puts everybody out of work for a couple of days, which it also stops a production, um, which is got – it's got um, – long kind of it ripples through your entire schedule and affects the entire yes production and mostly monetarily <laughs> so, so so Heidi what was your academic path to um Hollywood I want to say uh, was when you started off was this the path that you always wanted to be in did you always want to be a uh a um 
a, a person that worked within Hollywood? I, you know what, when I look back at it, I think I did, but I didn't know what the jobs were. And I really I wanted to be in the music business. Hmm. And then, you know, like opportunities basically kept popping up. So as you know, when I was in college, I was seeking an internship. And at that point, when I was in college, I had kind of let go of any idea of being in the entertainment industry. And I really wanted to work on Broadway, um, mm. but I just, I had no access to it and I didn't know how people got to do those jobs. And so okay. I had, I kind of like wasn't interested, but when I was applying for internships, I got turned down by every company. I had applied to all these insurance companies that I really wanted to work for because they had great internship programs. Okay. And I wanted a summer internship with Equitable, and I did not get accepted into their program. And okay. But I got accepted into an internship at CNN. Mm. And so I did a semester at C in Atlanta at CNN, and it kind of opened my eyes to the idea of I could still work in business, and it doesn't have to be like insurance or a Fortune 500 company. Okay. Um, and that once that seed was planted, because I always felt like I was a little too unconventional for business in some ways okay. um, for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. And so once I kind of figured that out, then I was like, hey, wait a minute. Um, so I started kind of jumping into the news thing. And so my first job out of college was with a company called Tempo Development, and my boss was the guy who I had worked for at CNN, and we did distribution of programming. So we worked with HBO and all those places and how people could basically, how uh, TV stations and cable companies bought packages of HBO, Showtime, there weren't that many cable channels back then. TBS was a really big one, all that kind of stuff. So I did that for like a year and a half, and I kind of got an idea of how distribution worked and why distribution was so important. And then after that, um, I ended up working for WSB, um, the ABC affiliate uh, in Atlanta, and I mm -hmm. spent a couple years there which I loved that job. I can't tell you how much I love that job um, <laughs> because they let me do anything I wanted to do, anything that I wanted to spend time because I was hired in the sales department. Okay. But if I wanted to, and which was uh, sales, basically commercial sales, they would sell advertising space to local and national uh, vendors, basically. And I was an assistant. So, but any time that um, I wanted to spend in any other department after work, they would let me do. So I ended up spending a lot of time in news, and I got to go out and do stories. Mm. I got to participate in the storm watch for the weather, um, <laughs> which was actually I loved storm watch also. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I got to, uh, pr the biggest things I got to participate in were the Democratic National Convention was in Atlanta, uh, whatever year that was, um, in Atlanta, and I got to go. 
and I got to go because I got to go with the news team. Hmm. Um, and I also got to, you know, so I got to be in all the press conferences, everything. Okay. So I also, they owned a radio station. I got to do voiceover work on the radio. I got to do all sorts of stuff. They were so open to letting you have opportunities there. And, you know, the people were really generous in teaching me how to do things. Um, and that led to, and I loved it. And I, because I loved uh, working there, I volunteered for everything. I participated in all the volunteer stuff. It was great. <laughs> Um, and wonderful. I would encourage anybody who's starting out okay. that they would do the same thing. Like if you're at a job and they have, and you you know uh, they have different uh, departments, or you want to do something within that company, you know, try to spend some time there, try to volunteer, try to do any of that stuff that they, as a company, ask you to do. Um, right. Because that experience is invaluable. I mean, things I learned at WSB are things that I use every day. Um, that practical experience, oops, um, that practical experience is something that I use every single day of my career now. Because the I things see. that you learn translate. You know, you have to kind of like, you learn, it may not be exactly what you want to do, but you all that information and the skills that you learn in those jobs as you're coming up will carry over right carry over into your current job and that's exactly what happened for me and i know that that's true for many people in different um professions yeah that's definitely true um heidi for the, I'm, I'm glad that you hit on that point, right? You said at the very beginning that you wasn't quite sure how to get into Broadway, but then you had this opportunity at CNN that kind of opened up um, a whole new vision for you and what you mm -hmm. can possibly achieve as a career. For young people today, you know, everybody want like you like we also talked about. Everybody want to be in entertainment. Everybody want to come come to Hollywood. Um, because it appears to be nice. What what path can a lot of people start taking? Like you said, volunteering. What what else would you suggest? You know, well, people right out of college or out of high school get started with. Well, before I'm sorry, but before I answer that, can I just say another thing about that experience? Is Definitely sometimes it's just important to get your foot in the door, yes. <laughs> like just to be there. Cause that was the thing with WSB. I was like, I'm going to take whatever job they say. Um, the other, the, what you realize is you start looking around and you realize that there are jobs within the industry that you want. There's a, a, a ton of jobs. So if you're just starting out and you want to be a part of Hollywood and whatever, and you think that you want to be a writer or you think that you want to be a director or an actor, what you also discover is that there's all these very creative jobs that aren't necessarily that, and people make really good livings doing these other things too. Um, mm -hmm. And that the opportunities are often much broader than you think that they are. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you, like I would say the biggest thing would be Get your foot in the door somewhere, you know, whether like for me, it was the local ABC affiliate. 
Um, it could be a small production company. It could be – I also worked in public access, which was strictly volunteer, mm-hmm. um, but made me familiar with cameras and all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, get out there and put yourself out there and and volunteer or uh, – you know, say, hey, I'll come in here and, I don't know, sweep up papers on Saturdays for you if that's what you need. Right, you've uh, got to be hungry. Yeah, you do. And you also have to understand that you're not going to start at the top of the food chain. Even if you graduate with a degree in film directing, doesn't necessarily mean your first job in this industry is going to be as a director. Your first job may be as a PA. And you may need to work on your own stuff on the side. Um, So for our college students out there, would you suggest like, you know, between, you know, um, between level grade levels or, you know, like during the summer for them to get themselves involved in internships versus waiting until they go all the way through college and then right as soon as they get their degree, then they want to go ahead and start into Hollywood. The earlier the better would be, the the earlier the start would be the best. Well, it just kind of depends. I would say don't limit yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't think that there's only one path. Um, And be smart enough to recognize opportunities. Because I got to tell you, I, like I said, the, the opportunities, like I said, I kept wanting to be in the music business, but opportunities for film and television kept presenting themselves to me. And wow. I was like, well, I better take this job. Um, and right. then somewhere along the way, I ran into, uh, like I ended up working with musicians and all that kind of stuff. And what was fascinating to me is they all wanted to be in film and TV. And I was like, what? How is that possible? Um, You know, and it was just interesting to me that they all had some, like, you always think the grass is greener. And it's like, yeah, not so much. You're actually, when I kind of really understood that, like, okay, I'm good at this and I should kind of keep doing it. And opportunities, like I said, just kept kind of presenting themselves. And I was like, this is, this seems to be the right path. And I eventually, because sometimes you're you're on a show and it's hard and all that, and you just want to give up. Even when I didn't want to do it anymore, I would have a little break, and then somehow, some opportunity or whatever, somebody would call me up and say, hey, I'm doing the show. Do you, can you uh, think about coming in? And I was like, okay, well, I need some money, so I better go do something. <laughs> Let me go um, get that. Right. And, you know, and you go, and then it turns out that this is a great opportunity and it ends up being a fun job, and then you like it again, and you're like, oh, okay, great, I love this. So I would say that they have to, for anybody starting out, they have to stay open-minded. They have to make sure that they're awake. Pay attention because there's so much, there's so many things you could do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's like, especially now with the gaming industry, web series, all that kind of stuff. There's so many more access uh, points. Mm-hmm. All of it. When yeah. I started out, there wasn't all of that. There was literally, and especially because I was in Atlanta, it was like whatever feature film came into town, and there was one TV series. And now Atlanta is a huge production hub. Um, and so, though I have to say Atlanta was a great place to start because the cost of living was fairly, uh, cheap. 
And so unlike L.A. or New York, you're not having to um, – I mean, I would take jobs – and then I could even take a break after a job because I could save my money. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't all going, you know, every paycheck wasn't going just to my rent, which in, when you're in L.A. and when you're in New York, that could be the case. Right, right, because of the high cost of living. Mm-hmm. I, I'm also keying into another theme throughout our entire conversation here, Heidi, and that's just the networking and being open to new relationships and being conscious of who's around you, right? You're hearing stories, you know, through various news outlets of individuals being blackballed, right? If you have a bad attitude, you don't got such such great of a work ethic, you might not get those calls. That's Um, absolutely correct. Right. So if you're building these strong relationships and you're networking as people grow in their career there you're getting calls from from your colleagues from past past uh projects that you've worked on the thing i also would say is that people you never know who's watching you mm-hmm. um and and also it's a type it's a type rope. so like when you look at like when i i heard about all the blackballing stories and all that kind of stuff that kind of thing is really it's difficult to navigate because a lot of times what happens is people make ask uh when when you're an actor sometimes they make ask and demands and often they don't know what other people are getting because it's all kind of that all ends up being very secretive salaries for actors can be somewhat secretive if you're on the same project um and you think that the other person's getting more, and you're like, no, they're actually not getting that either. Um, and you you might not believe it. You can't, you know, it, that's all really, really difficult. So you got to also be careful about who you surround yourself with mm-hmm. if you're an actor. You know, you have to have somebody who's going to help you make the right decisions. And sometimes you just have to eat it. And you're just like, well, all right, I'm going to take the hit for this. And then, you know, okay, so I'm not going to stay in the fanciest hotel, um, but I'm just going to go, and I'm going to go for the experience. And then I know in the next opportunity that I will ask for this, you know. Um, Kind of going back to what you're saying again, just always being open and conscious of what's what's out there not really uh, not really trying to let your ego take over the moment but trying to look at the bigger picture and where you want to go in this field right right and what you're willing to do i mean i think you know that's always that's a hard thing because especially i think it's hard for um i think it's really difficult for black people because there's not tons of us in this though at the moment it seems like there is but there's not and so sometimes you don't have anyone to talk to about how to navigate Mm -hmm. through a lot of this i was very fortunate in that i've had a couple of good friends who have always i could always call up and say this is happening what do i do about it I see. You know, and have kind of prevented me from making huge mistakes Mm -hmm. um, or blowing a situation out of proportion. Because you do get treated um, 
sometimes unfairly or unjustly or you're not valued for what you contribute to a project or whatever, but you have to, it's hard to pull back your ego. And it's very difficult to watch people who are, you know, you know are not as hard workers or for whatever, um, and they're, you know, jetting past you successfully. No, no. <laughs> I, like, is that, would you say that that's a race thing or is it because of certain levels that folks are, right? If um, you're like, it, a, I would say it's a everything, you know, okay. sometimes it, it's also just the nature of this. Cause I'm sure it happens to white people just like it happens to black people yes, in it. It probably happens. Everybody gets a taste of it and it, yes. and it probably happens more maybe more to us, I would say, just because this is not a industry in which that we control. Um, we have a, we have a very limited presence behind the scene. You know, we know about a few people. We know about the Shonda Rhimes of the world. We know sure. about the Tyler Perry of the world. Yeah. Um, but there's not a you know, for every Shonda and for every Tyler, I mean, the reason Shonda is such a phenomenon is because, you know, she's it. There's not she's a it bunch of black hard, women right? behind the scenes who have TV shows on, you know, network TV um, or creating as many, you know, who have successfully created as many as her. Um and plus the stuff she's doing, I mean, it, it's so contemporary and modern and, and cutting edge. And you can just tell that, you know, the storylines are fully developed and, you know, it's just good programming. You can tell that there's a lot of good energy that's she's, going into those shows. She's super talented and she's also a really, really hard worker. Yes. Um, but, you know, they're, not to say that we don't have those people, but if they've had that opportunity. She's been around for years. Yes. yes. Um, this and is that's just her the time other, right now, right? Right. And that's the mm -hmm. other thing that people don't understand is what appears to be, like, overnight. A lot of those people have been in the background for years and years yes. and years. They're just not the people who are in the headlines. Um, the creator of Blackish, Kenya Barris, mm -hmm. I worked with Kenya – 10 years ago, you know, Kenya's been around for a long time. Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, but now everybody knows who Kenya Barris is. I was like, I've known who Kenya is for a long time, you know. Um, and that's often the case is that so, people have been around for a long time. So, so Heidi, at what point in your career, you've been in this industry for a very long time, as you just said, at which point did you actually find your voice? Oh, not until recently. Not until recently. Not until I, I would say not until I became a production manager, um, because being a production manager, uh, what what I realized actually I take that back. When I was on Red Tails, when we were doing the movie Red Tails, and I was working with Anthony, and Anthony and I are very good friends and have known each other for a long time. Um, that experience, that because it was a long process, and I was there right from the very beginning, that kind uh -huh. of motivated me forward. I was there before they even finished, you know, before we even started casting. Um, and because I was able, 
because I, you know, had people like Anthony and I had people like George Lucas who, when I would make a suggestion about something, they would actually listen to me, which was wow. fascinating. I was like, oh, my God, they, they are going to look into what I asked about. You know? right. And I was like, that's, that's my voice. That's my voice. Is yeah, that, like, that is me. And so because <laughs> I was able to be heard in that, that kind of – I was like, okay, my instincts are good for this because I made many suggestions on that movie that they followed through on just in terms of casting and things like that. Granted, like I say many, as probably like five. Um, right. but to me, yeah. that was a lot because yeah, a lot of times right. you're not um, – nobody – a lot of times what happens uh, is it's not that nobody cares about what you think. But they're very clear about their vision, and they know what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're not necessarily open to somebody saying something. Um, and so I had that experience of, you know, over the period of almost two years, making maybe five suggestions, but they actually listened to what I had said and they some some of them worked out great, and some of them, you know, they were like, oh, we're not going to do that, and this is why. Um, but they tried, and and or, I think or that, they at least uh, listened, acknowledged, yeah, you know, they acknowledged, right? And that was that was kind of like a big, um, a big motivator for me because then I realized, like, you know what? I've been doing this a long time, and I do know what I do know what I'm talking about because you. It's a, a lot of it is confidence, mm-hmm. you know, because you do develop certain skill levels just through experience and time yes. and all of that. Yes. But you don't always necessarily have the confidence to mm-hmm. step forward and say something. And then when I became the production manager on Body of Proof, mm-hmm. uh, Jim Cleaver Weiss, my friend. Um, helped me, you know, he offered me that position despite the fact that I had absolutely no experience and went to the network and said she can do this, you know, all that kind of stuff. Helped me get that job. Um, and then I learned on those first two seasons of Body of Proof that, again, then it was like your confidence, you know, you kind develop a certain a amount of more. confidence right. and you start to – but I didn't really start – kind of speaking out a lot until a little bit of Silicon Valley, but not as much because that just was kind of out of my realm, but definitely on Blackish. And again, Kenya and Larry Wilmore and uh, Michael Peacock, producers on the show, are, you know, are, and Jonathan Groff are listening, you know, you'll say, hey, what about this? Or can we look at that? Or maybe we should do this. And they listen, and often they do what you mm-hmm. have thought about. And, again, it uh, it just kind of reinforces the idea that, oh, yeah, okay, I know what I'm doing. Right. And, and, and especially I think for, for me at least um, – I think you're. I think you're right, and I think that you're hitting on something very, very important. Right, and when you're finding your voice, you want to be acknowledged. You want to feel that you're being respected, 
And then once you're actually being heard and you're seeing what you kind of, you know, suggested being kind of played out, that does give you like that. You know what? I feel good because, you know, these people are understanding me. They're they're listening. And then it, it's actually working, too. So, right. you know what? I, I am qualified to be in this position. So, you know, that builds up your, your confidence. Like you said, it, it motivates you to, to to continue developing your skills. Exactly. And I, and, I, and I like that a whole lot. What resources or tools do you use right now to be, you know, to stay relevant, you know, to be that leader in your industry right now? Well, it's so funny because um, I didn't understand this. Like my uh, my cousin Regina Hicks is a writer. And when I first came out to L.A., you know, she was already a successful writer and writing on different TV shows. And a lot of times she and I, and I was working in production and working on TV shows. But what she did, and I didn't understand at the time, is she would, and this is in the days of VHS, <laughs> she would record all these different TV shows. Or she would watch all these old TV shows. And it used to, I used to be like, how can she stand watching all those shows? Why is she doing that? She's like obsessed. I don't get it and all that kind of stuff. And what I now understand about that is what she was doing is she was studying. And studying. she was studying the medium. Yes. Yes. And she was studying what worked. Yes. And I was like, it, like, clicked for me, I mean, literally years later, like, that's uh -huh. why she did all that, because right. she was studying what's going on. So I am very conscious of that now. You know, I study what are hits, and even if it's shows that I'm not particularly interested in, a lot of times I will watch at least three or four of the episodes just okay. to see how they work, what they're doing, what's appealing, what's, you know, and it's work. I mean, it sounds crazy, but watching TV is work um, mm -hmm. because I'm looking at it trying to figure out what it is. Like, I, you know, I watched, um, gosh, like the first five episodes of Empire, and then I finally figured out, like, what the formula is mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how there's certain elements that they have to include in every single episode. And I it's the see. same thing of when you're watching, um, you know, anything like a comedy or whatever. You're just trying to figure out what is it about this that works. Is it the dialogue? Is it the look? Is it um, the storyline? Is it, you know, what is it that's making this work? Why is this so appealing? Um, and also, when I'm looking at them, I'm, a lot of times I'm looking at uh, trying to figure out how they made it. So when I was doing mm -hmm. movies, I had a hard time watching movies, really hard time watching movies, because I, wouldn't, I couldn't lose myself in the story because I spent all my time trying to figure out how they made it while I was watching okay. it. And... When you say how they made it, are you like looking at it from the perspective of the type of cameras that they're using, the what you know the particular styles, type of format? How did they? Um, are they on location, or did they recreate something, uh, or I see. you know all that kind of stuff? Did they get it right? Like are all the elements 
the correct period, all sorts of stuff. You know, you just oh, find yourself okay. obsessing over details. So I didn't enjoy movies a lot. When I started working in TV, then I could really enjoy movies because I couldn't do that the same way. Like it didn't – it's funny. Mm. Working on movies kind of ruined movies for me, so it wasn't escapism. It felt like work. <laughs> Working in TV <laughs> allowed me to use movies again as escapism. I see. Um, working in TV, watching TV is there's some of it that's escapism, but for the most part, when I'm watching TV, it's work for me. I feel like yeah. I'm trying to, you know, decode figure it, it all like, out. Right, decode yeah. it to some degree. Yeah. Um, but there's some shows I can definitely lose myself in. I'm in the I'm in the process right now of binge watching um, House of Cards, uh, <laughs> but I feel myself drifting every now and then. You know, thinking like, hmm, I've seen that location before. Where did they shoot that? Who are these actors? Blah blah blah. You know, all sorts of stuff. Let me ask you this, Heidi. What do you think the future of you know, your field is entertainment, production management, uh, the way that the process that you guys actually take a script through to a pilot to, you know, a mainstream audience. What do you think the uh, field looks like for entertainment? I think <laughs> Especially that. Especially in your field. I think that um, it's going to change. It's changing as we speak because of the web. Um, I think that the, we'll find a more diverse group of uh, creators of content, mm -hmm. which is great. Uh, I think that we won't be watching TV the way that we had traditionally, and that there will be less and less shows that are, you know, must see TV and you tune in because of the way that you can watch it on different devices yes. at different times and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And I think that will eventually affect content. I know it's already affected content just because of the whole social media aspect of it. Like when, you know, when we're casting people, sometimes it's like, they're a good actor, and guess what? They have 15 million Twitter followers, you know? It's like, wow. hey, that's great. You know, add that to it. Um, you know, it's funny because LeBron James has some insane amount of Twitter followers. And, like, I, I read an article. He's on the cover of The Hollywood Reporter, and we were talking about how he wants to get more involved in film and television and developing those projects. Well, if you have somebody like him who has something like 21 million, you know, I don't even know if that's the number, but it's something like 20 million Twitter followers, you're advertising for that show to just get people to tune in is him sending one tweet. You know, it's oh, like, yeah. hey, my show is going to be on at 5 o'clock. And, you know, all of a sudden people are either setting up downloading or whatever it is that they want. They know it's out there. Um, so so that the internet been, is definitely kind of shifting the approach to uh, how a lot of these uh, shows are developed or made, um, you know, from the between the mediums, you know, from our television medium into the internet medium. Well, um, and just so. the thing like the fact that Amazon and Netflix and all those yes. people are creating original content, which is fantastic. 
um, you know, th that gives you other people who are making these projects, which is great, because then you get a more diverse uh, content to view. It also feels like sometimes, you know, there's way too much out there. Uh, you know, there's also, like, I'm not a big fan of reality TV, or I should say I'm a fan of certain kinds of reality TV, but I'm not a big fan of, like, housewives and all those kind of things. Yeah, they get a little wild on those type of shows. Like there's yeah. just no 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 filters at all. They're just going all out. And I feel like there'll be more of that too. Uh, like there's a yeah. good side to all of it and there's of the flip side to all of it. Yeah. You know There's definitely like a, a demographics that that kind of you know, enjoys watching that type of stuff, right? That's why right. they've been on season after season for like the last what 10 years or so right and yeah. and that's also why you know and those people are able to convert those careers into something too because like if you look at um if you look at uh you know nene leaks she's been able to convert her time in the real housewives into a you know a fairly halfway decent acting career. She was right. on Broadway recently. Right. Those tricks um, are still coming in and, and it goes back to your point earlier, you know, being open to to different areas of entertainment, right? Don't just get stuck in this one little area, but really, really opening yourself up and seeing those opportunities as they come. And as they come, you know, evaluate and take them if it if it's your, you know, your mode. Well, and what's crazy about that, too, is like, you know, Nini is actually a pretty good example, is Nini has been coming out to L.A. for pilot season, you know, again, pointing out that she's not the uh, overnight success. She had been coming out for pilot season for years yes. and coming out and auditioning for parts for years. Then she ended up doing Real Housewives. Then, you know, she got a part on, I forgot that show, The New Normal or something like that. And then she ended up doing Broadway. And from what I, I understand. Glee or something too, right? Yeah, she also worked on Glee. But then she did Broadway. And from what I understand, she did a really good job. Um, that work ethic again, right? Working yeah, hard and, that and taking it serious. People, you know, like they come at it at all different paths. Right. So it comes from all different places. You'd, you'd be surprised. Um, and then there's also the what I call the manufacturing of stars. A lot of people don't realize, like a lot of the <laughs> more popular people, on especially the younger people, have come all. You know, they were all part of Disney Channel or Nickelodeon and mm -hmm. all those kind of mm -hmm. things, and started out really young, and have been in this for a long, long time. You know, that, that, I'm glad that you said that also because up here in the Bay Area, there's this college. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's one of those Pixar. It's a, it's, they are somehow affiliated with Pixar, and mm -hmm. it's a college, a very expensive private college. And my understanding is that students actually go to this college, no matter if it's like in design, animation, cartooning or, or whatever it is, set building. But the whole idea is that they come out of this program with some sort of master's degree in whatever area they're in. Mm -hmm. And then right from there, 
they're going right into, you know, these major Hollywood productions or these Pixar productions in into jobs. So there's like this there's there's this specific or particular path for these students, right? So at the mm-hmm. end they got those network connections because also what's even more intriguing about this particular college is that they um that a lot of those professors they're you know, directors in Hollywood, they're directing these multi-million dollar Pixar type shows. And in a lot of situations, a, a lot of the, the, the students, they're participating in the movies. They're doing those internships. So as soon as they're out of college, they, they land themselves in some sort of job. So so that, that is an, another way to possibly get into uh, entertainment as well, especially in the movie business. Absolutely. And you know what yeah. I would recommend to anybody? Because this is, it's so funny because I think about this now. It's like, what a great idea. If you go on any network uh, website like ABC, CBS, NBC, you can eventually, by clicking through a bunch of different stuff because it will get to employment, they all have internship programs. And some of them are paid and some of them are not. But that's the case at all the studios uh, or all the networks. And then I'm sure the studios also have that, too. So they have internship programs. They have all sorts of things that, you know, was not as formalized when uh, when I was starting out. Um, So it's that's. I think that that's like a good way to get started or at least understand what the process is or how you gain access. Um, I would imagine, I don't know because I haven't been looking at internship programs in a long time, but I would imagine even on Broadway now, like there's certain production companies that have internships and so forth now, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which if at the time, if I had known that, I probably would have gone in that direction. But I didn't know anything about that at the time. so there's there's definitely more access points now than there used to be. Yes, and, and to go back, just so that I'm very clear and all my facts uh, are, are are straight and correct, the name of that college is called Expressions College. Okay. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Thank you very much again, Heidi. Again, to all our listeners, thank you for joining in on our conversations here. We're talking to Heidi McGowan. She's a production manager for one of the the the, the, the the most popular shows of our time on network TV, which is the show called Blackish. We're basically just having a conversation with her about her career, how to get into her career, and really about that hard work ethic. I think that's the overall theme of this particular podcast. At this point of the podcast, Heidi, we have probably a few more minutes. I know that you're, you got some things to prep for your weekend, you know, get through your weekend. So once again, I appreciate you joining. Well, thank and, you for having me. Anytime. So let's go ahead and finish out the conversation. I have a few questions for you. Okay. And uh, what's the favorite part of your day? Um, the favorite part of my day is going to the set and seeing all the kids because they <laughs> make me laugh every yeah. single day. So, and that would be my favorite part of my job is I probably laugh every single day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what's your favorite technology or app? <clears throat> Ooh, favorite technology is my computer. Um, what kind of computer do you have? I have a I have several. I have a Apple desktop 
something, I don't know what it's called. And I have a MacBook Pro and I have an iPad. So definitely those Mac products. Yeah, yeah. And I have an iPhone. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And favorite okay, favorite app has nothing to do with work, which is Vino. Um <laughs> Oh yeah. Pictures of the <laughs> of wine bottles and figure out where they came from. But anyway. <laughs> right. I, I think at one of I think at your birthday parties, one of your friends, they actually told Lee and I about that app. Yeah, and, I love that we, app. We loaded it so every party that we've been to after that or dinner or anything like that, anybody pass a bottle or even yep. during the holidays, someone <laughs> some of the folks brought us some bottles of wine. I'm in the back like clicking it like okay, let's just see what kind of wine it's in, you know, how popular it is, how many stars it has and what and, people and are actually it saying. Tells you food pairings. That's my yes. favorite part. I was like, That is yes. genius. But yes. anyway, okay. Yeah, that is a great app. Yeah. Okay, what if you if you were to you know once you live out the rest of your days and you're born again, you know, in some religions they have this concept of you know coming back, you know, to to the world as something else. If you're reborn, what would you come back as? Um, a landscape architect. You mean like for career? For a career, or you know, you come back as a lion. I think I'll come back as a lion, the king of the jungle. I would come back as a person, but a landscape architect. I think if I could spend every day in a garden, that would be my favorite thing. Yeah. I love gardens. Yes, yes. Have you ever heard of the term called Afrofuturism? No. Can you try to decipher what Afrofuturism is? Uh, I want to guess that it would be, um, I guess a philosophy of, of Afrocentric or Afro African people of what their future, what the prediction of what their future will be. Okay. Okay. Are you familiar with the Mars One? No. Okay. Um, if if you if you know there's this whole there's this whole program that's being developed. I want to say by NASA. I might have to check that fact, but I'm pretty sure it is. But they've selected a hundred people. Um, originally there were two two hundred thousand people two hundred thousand applicants who applied for this. Um, particular program, and they narrowed it down to 100 people. And I want to say again that there's 50 men and 50 women from all over the world. Mm-hmm. We have uh, some Americans, and actually two of those that's been selected are actually from San Francisco, an African American female, and then a Caucasian male. So what the program is starting in 2000, um, 2024. They're going to start sending people up to Mars to actually start building um, like a, a colony. And then two years after that, another four people will come, go up there. Mm-hmm. So so after, you know, I guess what, 20 times 40, 25 years or whatever, four, how many, however, whatever four goes into 100 that many years, um, 
every two years after that, four people will go up there and join the colony on Mars. So they're basically going up and developing a colony where folks can actually live and work mm -hmm. and never come back home to Earth. So there's, there's this whole thing of like really building a future um, on another planet out there in the universe. It's very interesting. Get opportunity, uh, check it out online, uh, Mars One. Hmm. Um, what's your favorite snack? Hmm. My first thought was avocados. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Justin's almond, vanilla almond butter. Oh, yeah. It is pretty tasty. With in, in future, what te technology, excuse me, let me repeat that. In, in the future, what technology from today will still be around? Uh, I think we'll be more developed with holograms and that kind of communication. So, like, it'll be more of, like, on Silicon Valley, we kept, <laughs> we had a gag of that you could talk to people through, like, their hologram would come and talk to you. Hmm. So that kind of hologram technology will completely be developed. So, like, if I were talking to you right now, you could see me sitting down at my desk and having the conversation, even though I wasn't there. Yeah, I can see that. that. That's actually pretty cool. You know, I think when they brought Tupac out, um, I think it was one of those Coachella concerts yeah, a couple yeah. of years ago. I think that was like the start of something that's just going to continue on. And it's just technology is just so awesome in that way that folks are continually to be innovative and create new things. And, and now we're talking about this podcast where sometime in the near future, definitely within the next 100 years, because we could kind of do that already with the, you know, video to video type of thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's very possible for us to, you know, create a hologram of ourselves and possibly be in, be in the same room and communicate on that exactly. level, which exactly. would be pretty cool. So once again, Heidi, thank you again. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Well, thank um, you again for having me. It was really good. Very interesting. Anytime. I want to wish you the very best of luck in everything that you do. And um, thanks again for participating. For listeners who might be interested in production management or roles within, you know, the various roles that you spoke about on a particular show or, or movie, from a social media standpoint, how could folks contact you? Um, contacting me directly is probably not a great idea because uh, I am, first of all, all my emails are heavily privatized um, yes. but the other part of that is um the best way to learn about the things that i talked about one would be the director's guild website um resource they have a really great public website they, they have a certain portion that's for members but there's also Oh, the general website, because if you remember, you type in a code and it, it leads you to more specific information. But yes. for general information, the Director's Guild website is really great. The Television Academy website. Um, there's, 
Yeah, there are all sorts of really great websites. You can go to all the network websites and, like I said, search for uh, internships and things like that. Um, That's wonderful. So there's lots of uh, information out there. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. And thank you, Shane. You're, you're very much welcome. Have a wonderful day, Heidi. You do the same. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Everyone, you definitely listening to the podcast, and we had a great, great, great interview right there. I advise you to listen and re-listen because Heidi went ahead and dropped a lot of gems. She dropped a lot of gems on how to get into the uh, the field of production management and uh, so on and so forth. So. If you want to contact me, we're actually developing a website right now, and this website right now is really, really, really cool. Um, it is shanehair.net, and you will be able to find all of our podcasts on that domain name. Um, and then also, uh, be feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook group, which is uh, facebook.com forward slash the rabbit hole podcast. And always, please contact me if you want to be a guest on the show if you want to if you have any feedback if you have any any comments anything i'm open to everything you know i want i'm trying to grow we're trying to learn we're trying to develop this podcast into something that's that's great that's cool that's very informative for you all all right with that said always be curious of life to discover new experiences and always Envision yourself in the future. Peace. This is the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Peace. God bless the child. Let's got his own. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.